We are moving toward the end of uh, this Wednesday night series of teachings. Uh, we've got another uh, couple of weeks or so that we're planning on doing with this series uh, on the Gospel of Mark that we've entitled The, the uh, Immediate Jesus. And we've dealt with a number of different aspects. We've talked about his parables. We've talked about his public ministry. We've talked about his private relationships. We've talked about his closest friends. And, and now today, we're, we're going to see perhaps a different aspect of the gospel account. Uh, last week, we talked about how Jesus uh, came to the crossroads, where he made the decision to, to turn the direction of his, of his ministry from the ministry of Galilee and, and to go toward Jerusalem, knowing that this would be the point at which he would enter into the danger zone, that, that he would move into the crosshairs, so to speak, that he would become the target of the Pharisees and all of his religious opponents. And, and at, at, at Jerusalem, Jesus was going to move right straight into that danger zone. And so tonight we're going to be talking about Jesus in the crosshairs. As the target begins to be trained onto the back of his neck, uh, as he is the, the most controversial and powerful figure of his day, a man who dominated the landscape. He is known, he was known from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south, uh, and, you know, I think often we get a misunderstanding of who Jesus was in his own generation, but he was the most controversial, well-known name of his day. Everywhere he went, there were multitudes of people, and multitudes mean thousands of people. Thronging multitudes followed him constantly, and he, he was known in some quarters as the miracle worker, as the great teacher, and he was known in other quarters as the charlatan that was going to bring the wrath of Rome down upon Israel's neck. He was loved, adored, worshipped, hated, despised, and plotted against all at the same time. However, in Jerusalem, that scope was trained on him. And this was the beginning of the end. So if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 12. I'd like for us to begin to read in verse 13. We'll read through verse 27. Uh, we'll be in mostly in Mark chapter 12, a little bit in chapter 15 tonight as well. But let's pick it up in Mark 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, take a moment and underline in your Bible, if you, and let, a little harder if you're using a, uh, your Bible on your phone, but if you've got your, your uh, physical copy there, underline the words Pharisees and Herodians. Underline that. Verse 14, And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are, not, you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Then verse 18, and Sadducees came to him. Now underline the word Sadducees. And now in this short passage, you have three of the major opponents of Jesus in this passage. The Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. 
There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seventh left no offspring. By the time the seventh son rolls around, I always read this, and I think if I was the seventh son in that story, I'd be like, please, Daddy, don't make me marry her. <laughs> That's what I'd be thinking. But anyway, uh, last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. You know, it, it is almost inconceivable to us from where we stand that, that these forces have, uh, that they arrange themselves in such lethal hatred against Jesus. It, it's so difficult for us to comprehend that all these people from these different perspectives hated Jesus enough that they were willing to lay down the separations between them. Because you see, they not only hated Jesus, but they all hated each other. They couldn't stand each other. Nevertheless, at one point, they became unified at the point of being willing to do whatever it took to place the crosshairs on Jesus. And tonight, we're going to ask four questions in our study. Number one, who were the enemies of Christ? Second question, how did they get on the wrong side of the issue with God? I mean, that's really important to me to know that, because especially with when you think about the scribes and the Pharisees, because uh, uh, how, how does somebody who reads the Bible, somebody who not only reads it, but they love and adore the Bible like the Pharisees did, how did they get irrevocably on the wrong side of the issue with God? How, how did they miss it? How did they miss Jesus in the middle of that? So the first question is, who were the enemies of Christ? Second question, how did they end up on the wrong side of the issue with God? Third, what were their tactics? How did they move from their point of view and just an idea in their head to the tactics and bringing Jesus to the cross? And then fourth, how did Jesus act in the crosshairs? When the scope was trained on the back of his neck, he knew it. The, the disciples knew it. The, the, the entire city knew it. His enemies knew it. He was a walking target. How did Jesus act? All right, the first question. Who were the enemies of Jesus? Well, the first group is made up of people called the scribes and the Pharisees. Look, if you will, at Mark 12, 35. It says this, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit on my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like, the, and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the, back, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now, when you read that, honestly, we, we don't have to ask ourselves why they hated Jesus. I've always said, 
It's not amazing to me that they killed Jesus. What's amazing to me is that it, that they, that it went three years before they killed him because of the things that he would say. But, but who were his enemies? These particularly the scribes and the Pharisees, who were they? Well, they were the, they were the consummately religious crowd. They were the legalists. Uh, the, 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 they were those who had religious control and they, they dominated the socioeconomic and cultural scene of Israel using the law. They dominated that which they enforced because they, they were the religious lawyers. They, they tried the cases. They heard the cases. They were the students of the law to the, to, at the point of jot and tittle. In other words, they, they knew the tiniest little grammatical points of the law. The, they knew every dot over the I and every t cross of the T. They knew it all. And by making the law more and more complicated, because that's what they would do. You see, um, you look at the pharise pharisaical teaching and, um, and the, the, a lot of the rabbinical teaching of, over, the, over the decades, over the centuries, I should say, um, you'll, you'll see that they'll have the scripture, but then the teachers would add to that. They would have this, this whole body of teaching and say, well, this, it says, the Bible says, you shall not do this. Well, this is what this means. And they would add all this teaching and they would make it so complicated and make it so difficult to the point that one might violate the law and never even realize it. And by doing that, what they really were doing was they were entrenching themselves in their own power. For, for they, were, they were entrenching themselves, their, their own religious control over the people. So the scribes and the Pharisees are, are the people, uh, they, they were not about a, a living God. They were not about a living faith. They were about a dead legal approach. They're, they're concerned with making sure that everybody does it right. They're the self-appointed referees of the basketball game of life. That's who they were. Second group of enemies was the, was the Sadducees. Now, of course, there's the, the tired old joke that we all use, and I'm obligated to use it because not only am I a pastor, but I'm a dad. But it's, but it's uh, as the Sadducees, you know, they, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Therefore, they were sad, you see. There's, that's the bad joke. That's the bad joke of the day. But, but the Sadducees, dare, dare, I, dare I use the word, if the Pharisees were legalists, then the Sadducees were the liberals. They, they did not... Uh, believe in the supernatural dimension at all. The Sadducees didn't. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. In fact, we just read how uh, there was a notation made by Mark saying that the Sadducees came who did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They, they didn't believe in the coming of the Messiah, not in the same sense that the Pharisees did. They only believed it in the sense that it was a symbolic of the rise of political messianic mission in the, in the nation of Israel. They, they were Zionists without the hope of the resurrection. They were jaded, uh, without hope, theoreticians. They were cold-blooded, cold-eyed liberals who considered themselves part of the religious establishment, but they denied even the, the life that the Pharisees would have had, which was the supernatural dimension in the resurrection of the dead. Look at, look at verse 18, Mark 12. We read it a moment ago. I'm not going to read the whole story again. It says, and, and Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. Now, we just read it, as I said. So we're not going to read the whole story again, the whole question and the scenario and the answer that Jesus gave. Uh, but the Sadducees, they come to Jesus and they ask, a, they ask him this complicated question about multiple brothers and one woman. 
and the resurrection. They're using a question of complicated mosaic law, which would have ironically appealed to whom? Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. A complicated question like that would appeal to the Pharisees. They would have eaten that up. They said, well, let's get in here. We'll figure out what's right here. Uh, however, they're using it to embarrass Jesus over a point that the Pharisees would have relished. So in a way, they're, they're trying to embarrass Jesus, but they're also sort of making fun of the Pharisees at the same time in this, in this whole question uh, because, because this whole thing to them was tongue-in-cheek. They don't believe in the resurrection, so why are they asking a question about the resurrection? Because they're trying to set up a scenario that would show how ridiculous it would look at the resurrection of the dead if this scenario had happened. So there's, they're, they're trying to show how, what, how lightweight the Pharisees were in their th theological view, but they're also trying to embarrass Jesus and trap him at the same time. They just, they're like, man, we can kill two birds with one stone with this question. I mean, so there's like, if this supposed resurrection is going to occur, when, when all eight of these people are resurrected, these seven brothers and this one woman, when they're all raised up from the dead... How is God going to sort out this issue of this pharisaical point of Mosaic law? So that was, that was it. That's the, the Sadducees. Third group is the Herodians. We're going to come back to a lot of these. It's going to interweave a little bit tonight. The third group is the Herodians. That's not one a lot of us have heard of. Probably everybody in church has heard of the scribes and the Pharisees, which uh, the scribes were just basically priests and the Pharisees, and, and many Pharisees were also priests, but... Not all of them were, but then, and we've all heard of the Sadducees, we've heard of these groups, but, but a lot of us, we might have missed the Herodians because they're not mentioned in nearly as much. But they're referred to here in verse 13 of Mark chapter 12. Now, the Herodians were collaborators. They were the, so to speak, the quislings of their day. They, they are those who are devoted to King Herod, and therefore they want peaceful cooperation with the Roman occupiers. The only reason King Herod was in power was because the Romans were in power and they gave him that, that place of, of authority. And so the Herodians were those who said, hey, yeah, we'll be with Herod because that's going to give me power. They were collaborators. They're, they're sinful, uh, sensual, materialistic, and pragmatic. And we know, I mean, King Herod was a very uh, sensual sinner. Uh, these, this group, they are the go-along, get-along crowd. They are those who are willing to cooperate with the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Romans or anybody else who has the power or control in the moment. Now, the fourth enemy of Jesus is the Romans, and, and they are, oddly enough, the more distant and, uh, of his enemies and the least immediately lethal. Now, eventually, they had the power and the lethality to be able to kill him, but at this moment in time, they're they're the, the, actually one of the least threats to him at this point in Jesus' life. Look, look at Mark 15, verse 1, if you will. You'll see how Rome wasn't necessarily out to try to get Jesus. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a con consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, Pontius Pilate. He is the appointed Roman governor. He's the occupation governor, the, the military governor, and he's ruling over what was called by the Romans Palestine. And he's ruling over this area from Jerusalem, and he also had an administrative headquarters in Caesarea. He was appointed by Caesar, and he is, as far as the Roman government goes, he is 
the, the power of life and death in Judea. He has the power to grant life or to kill you based on his judgment. You know, it's, it's actually very interesting to me that, uh, but, but in the his, historically, there are many, many liberals doubted for many years the, the veracity of Pontius Pilate because they said there were no records anywhere of Pontius Pilate outside of the New Testament. So they said, well, they, you know, they said he didn't exist. So many, many liberal scholars, and, and I sort of consider those two words together, liberal scholar in the same sentence as a bit of an oxymoron. But, but many of those liberal scholars said that there was no such person in history as Pontius Pilate because they said there's no reference to him anywhere else besides the Bible. But then a number of years ago, they decided to take out some of the seats of the ancient amphitheater in Caesarea. Remember, that's where we're told that Pontius Pilate had his, his administrative headquarters there. And, and the Roman amphitheater in Caesarea, had, had, it has stone seats and, and they're laid across these stone cross pieces, if you will. And, and they were becoming worn due to the tourists that were coming in and sitting and, and they, were, they were just uh, being slowly being worn out. And so they decided to take those seats out and replace them with replicas so that they could preserve the original seats. Well, when they took the very first row and, they, uh, uh, and, and turned it over and looked at the bottom of that, they discovered that it said under, underneath that, it said, dedicated this day to me, by me to the glory of Caesar Augustus, Pontius Pilate. And of course, half the seminary professors in the Western world had to apologize because the Bible was right again. So the Romans, they, they represent the political and military power. They're, they're the ones who are concerned with political power. They're the ones concerned with money by taxation. They have no ideals. They're not doing what they do because they think it's the right thing. Uh, they're doing it because of the raw power. They are willing to resort, resort to brutality, and they want to keep up the appearance of civil law. They, they are about law and order. And then finally, there's a, there's a fifth group that initially wasn't an enemy of Jesus, but became an enemy of Jesus, and that's the mob. The mob, the common man, bound together by the events rather than by any common goal. They were caught up in a moment, in the emotion of the moment, rather than dealing with any kind of common goal. Look, look at Mark 15, verses 11 through 14. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd, that's the mob, to have him, have him, speaking of Pilate, have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So we have these five enemies of Christ as he stands in the crosshairs of the target. And let's, let's see if we can identify and see what we can see about them. So we have the scribes and the Pharisees, number one. They're the religious crowd that is about religious control. They are about domination of their culture and their society over points of religious legalism. They deny the power of God and the living presence of God. They are the legalists of the day. The Sadducees, as we said, they're the liberals, the Herodians, they're the collaborators. Uh, they are the, the sleazy backroom politicians who buy into the deal in order to get the promotion and to get the chairmanship of the committee that they want. You have the Romans, 
They're the dominant political and military force, and then you have the mob, and that's the people, the, the emotionalists, we could call them. They are fickle. Uh, they are unwilling to sort through the issues. They don't care about real truth, what is real truth. They're only caught up in the emotion of the issue. They are without spiritual discernment. They are without maturity. They are without balance, without, without proper leadership. They become a mob rather than just a thoughtful group. In, in, in a way, when you hear all of these things, you might say that Jesus' greatest enemy of all is all of the above. The, the paradox of their hatred for one another is their unity as enemies of God. The scribes and Pharisees, they hated the, the Sadducees because they didn't believe the doctrine that they believed. The Sadducees hated the Pharisees because they considered them weak-minded theologically. The, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated the Herodians because they compromised with the, with the Romans, with these occupiers. And all three of these groups hated the Romans because they ought not have been there in, in Palestine. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, they all hated the mob because they considered them illiterate and unwashed. The Romans hated the mob because they feared rebellion. And the mob hated the Romans because they taxed them. There was nothing in all of their culture to unify them. They all hated each other. Nevertheless, in their own way, each of them became the enemy of God combined with the others. Do you see what it means? It means that ultimately, in that moment, all the world's systems flowed together in the spirit of Antichrist. Religion, false theology, collaboration, sinful sensuality, materialistic pragmatism, the, the, the get-along, go-along crowd, the you know, political power, the emotionalists of mob mentality, because, you know, the same ones who Christ, Hosanna to the king who comes in the name of the Lord will, will, will at the drop of the hat also scream crucify him. It was the same people. But why? How did they get on the wrong side of the issue with God? That's our second question. How do all these people wind up opposing Jesus? I mean, listen, if you'd asked the Pharisees, what's the greatest hope of Israel? They would have said the coming of Messiah, Emmanuel, that, that the seed of the woman should come and bring deliverance to Israel. If he'd asked the Sadducees, what's the great hope of Israel? They would have said the coming of a king, the, the restoring of Israel. If you'd asked the Herodians, what's the great hope of Israel? They would have said that God would restore us to power. If you'd asked the mob, what do you want from God? They would have said salvation. However, they, they all missed it. How did they all wind up on the wrong side of things? Well, well the short answer, of course, is sin. You know, that, that force that that always opposes the work of God and, and opposes Christ's presence in any moment of history is always sin. But let's look at the five again. Scribes and Pharisees, Sadducees, the, the, the Herodians, the Romans, and, and the mob. And let's see what the answer is for each of them explicitly. Well, for the scribes and the Pharisees, the legalists, it was envy. It was envy. Turn to Mark 15, verses 9 and 10. We're going to read both verses, but verse 10 is the key. It says, and he, and it's talking about Pilate, he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived, listen, to this, that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. 
the, uh, the issue among, the, among those who are devoted legalists will always be envy. You, you can just write that one down in your journal. Let, let me put it this way, and, and you may not know what I'm talking about. The legalist is a dog in the manger. And if you don't know, have, have you ever heard this, the old story of the dog in the manger? Okay, well, the dog lies in the straw in the manger. It's all comfortable. Then the cow comes to eat, and the dog barks at the cow and has, until the cow has to bat away, back away. And he says, if you try to eat this straw, I'll bite you. And the cow says, well, then, then you eat it. It's just going to go to waste. You eat it then. And the, and the dog says, no, I'm a dog. I don't eat straw. And the cow says, well, then move and let me eat it. And the dog says, no, I'm not going to eat it, but neither are you. That's the dog in the manger. A legal, legalist is a dog in the manger. And I'll explain the, the picture there. The legalist is going to get everything neatly arranged, perfect according to the law, perfect according to their system. And, and, and when the wind of the Spirit begins to blow, he'll do what, whatever it takes to nail the window shut because he doesn't want the wind to mess up what he is, his perfectly arranged system. Not, not only is he not going to receive the breath of God, he's not going to receive the power of God, but he's, he's going to do whatever it takes to keep you from receiving it. That's the dog in the manger. Why? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit will not play by his rules. Even after Pentecost in the early church, what, what was one of the major problems? Why did the church in Jerusalem get so upset when the people in Cornelius's house in Caesarea received the Holy Spirit and were baptized in water? When that happened, why did the church in Jerusalem get so upset? Why would that, did that bother them? Well, it was because God was not playing by their rules. Now, thankfully, they were open to the Holy Spirit and, and they changed. They were able to, to see, okay, God is doing this. And so they received the Gentiles. But, but in their mind, God wasn't supposed to give the Holy Spirit to Romans. I mean, these stinking Gentiles weren't supposed to get the same gifts that Israel got. I mean, what, what's going on here? Not only that... And even if they did get it, they, they, they were gonna, if they did receive it, they ought to have received it in the upper room the same way we received it. But instead they received it where? In Caesarea, a hated Roman seaport city where Pontius Pilate, spent, this occupier, spent 90% of his time because he was afraid for his life in Jerusalem. So, so Peter goes to Caesarea and preaches to a household full of Romans and they all believe on Jesus, they all receive the Holy Spirit, and they're all baptized in water, and, and, and even the church filled with the Holy Spirit. James, the, the brother of Jesus, the bishop of the church in Roman, uh, in, excuse me, in Jerusalem, says, Well, Romans, wait till Peter gets back here. And boy, when Peter arrived, they were, they were waiting with like their guns drawn, buddy. You know, because the mentality of legalism is, I don't care. If the life of God is in it, it doesn't fit in with my rules. And the legalist will try to stop the power of God moving in any given situation because of envy. Because he doesn't want you having something that he doesn't have that doesn't fit into his rules. He, he doesn't have the power. He won't receive the power. He won't do what it takes to receive the power. But he'll do whatever it takes to stop it. So what's the problem with the Sadducees, the liberals? Well, it's unbelief. Of course, it's, it's sin for all of these groups, but the Sadducees' great sin 
is unbelief. They will not receive the presence of Christ because they have structured for themselves a support ladder of liberal theology that denies the issues. We don't believe a Messiah is coming, therefore, even though all the signs point to you being the Messiah, we're going to reject you because you don't fit into my, into my theology. And their theology, by the way, I mean, it's, I'm going to get into this. They're, they had a system, uh, not, of, not of theology really, but they had a system of unbelief. The, 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 and these people, they would correspond to many modern seminary professors and liberal seminaries who have so isolated themselves from the life and the presence of God and from the reality of Christ and, and from the Holy Spirit. They're hiding behind their own system, as I said, not a theology, but, the, but a system of unbelief. One, one man tells about his experience on the, uh, on the first day as a graduate student at Emory University's uh, Candler School of Theology in, in Atlanta. In June of 1970, this man graduated from the University of Maryland and went to Atlanta to enroll in Emory University's Candler School of Theology. He was going to work on a Master's of Divinity, Divinity and Theology. And he was fresh from the secular state university. He was so excited to get into a Christian school. Well, he went to class on the very first day of, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, the first day of class in June of 1970. He sat down in the very front row in the very center uh, section, and his professor came in. This was Old Testament 101 was the class. And, and the professor walked in, and he stood behind the desk, and he said in a thick German accent that I'm not even going to try to re re recreate here, but he said, good morning. My name is Hendrikus Bortz. He said, I teach Old Testament. And I'm an atheist. Well, welcome to, to graduate school. The problem with unbelief is that I can systematize my unbelief. And, I, and in that process, I can make a wall of vain teachings through which the Holy Spirit can't reach me. Because I make a God of my own intellect. I make an idol of my own system of, of unbelief rather than actually trying to find truth. I say, I don't believe this can happen, therefore, I'm going to push, I'm going to push, I'm going to reject it all. See, theology, think of it this way, theology is what you believe to be true about God. Everybody has a theology. May not be biblical. I've known a lot of people that have a lot of weird ideas about God. That's their theology. It's not biblical, but that's the theology. That's what they believe about God. Unbelief is what you believe not to be true about God. You see that? Unbelief says, no, God's not the creator. I, I don't believe that's true about God. Um, the, the thing is, those who will oppose the genuine life in the Holy Spirit most vehemently. Here we go. Now, you ready for this? Those who will become the most incensed at the teachings of Jesus, the truth of the, of the gospel, the truth of the word, fall into two categories. The, first of all, those who have a system of belief, the modern Pharisee. They have their system of beliefs. God will do this and God won't do that. This is my structure. He'll do this, he'll do this, he'll do this, or it'll only work in my denomination, or, or you know, it, 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 it'll only work by the rules that we put in place, and if it's anything else, then it's wrong. They structure themselves into it. They, they, 
They, they look to rules and systems put in place by men, men like John Calvin or John Wesley or George Whitfield or somebody like that. Or, and they say, this is what we believe. And they put that in place and structure themselves behind it. They're the legalists. They, they will hate a genuine move of God and they'll do everything they can to stop it. But the second group that becomes incensed is the liberals. They hate it. Basically, because if it's genuine, they, you know, they'll make a mockery of it. They'll make cynical jokes about it. Liberal professors will mock the students in their classrooms that have had a touch from God. They'll laugh at them and they'll pound them with their system of unbelief. Why? Well, if it happened in your life and it is real, then maybe there's something wrong in my life and I can't accept that. Then there are the Herodians or the collaborators. They're the sensualist, sinful, materialistic ones. They're, they're not hiding by, behind law or behind liberalism. They're just simply saturated in the flesh. Then you have the Romans, where they were the political and military power. You know, they were, they're like the, the guy with the swastika on his boot or, or the hammer and sickle uh, or whatever it is. And they're, they're going to exercise power by lethal, brutal, military and political power. And then the mob... They were, they, were, they were just those who were simply caught up in the emotion, which, by the way, that's the least dependable group. If, you, if you're leading a worship service and you rev it up to fever pitch, they'll, they're going to go with you, boy. They'll do whatever it takes. If you want to rev it, boy, they'll rev it with you. However, they're just not dependable because uh, their worship may be merely caught up in emotion. And emotion has no discernment. And emotion has no strength of character. Emotion will, will turn on you like a sidewinding rattlesnake. That's why even in your own self, you cannot trust your feelings. Because emotions will lie to you. And they'll, they, I mean, listen, people, they'll be shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord one minute. And then they'll be screaming, screaming, crucify you, crucify him in the very next. Uh, they're undependable, whimsical, capricious. They are a mob, Okay. Now then, those are the reasons they wound up on the wrong side. Those are the sins they dealt with. And that takes care of the first two questions. So let's look at what were their tactics. And I think we can do it, deal with this one pretty quickly. The tactic of, of any or all of these groups always reveal who they really are. You, you've, you've heard of a paternity test, you're right? You know what a paternity test is. You know, well, is there a 100% valid spiritual paternity test? And yes, there is. Here it is. You can tell who somebody's father is by the way they act. Another way to say it is by, your, by their fruit you will know them. Everybody in this world has one of two fathers. Either your father is God or your father is Satan. Now I know there's people out there, everybody likes to say, oh, but we're all children of God and and in the sense of creation, that's true. In the sense that God loves all of us, that's true. There, there is an element of truth to that. But when we're talking about the gospel, when we're talking about being born again, that's not true that everybody is a, is a child of God. It's just not true. Some of us are children of God and some of us are children of Satan. So what's the paternity test? Is it to use the right words? Is it you know how to talk Christianese? Is it you have the right vocabulary? Well, no, it's not that. It's that in a crisis, you will know who a person's father is by the way they act. Everybody can fake it when things are easy, right? But in the crisis, 
Pay attention to how somebody acts, how they respond. What do they do? Are, are they plotting? Are they deceptive? Are they nitpicking? Look at the passage in Mark 12, 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Now, already there's some strange bedfellows there, right? I mean, you know something's wrong when the Pharisees and the Herodians get together and say, hey, let's work together on this. Something's already off. They hated each other. But it says, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. It was about deception. They, 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 even, they even flattered him in, that, in the question saying, we know you're a person who just does not care what other people think. You're such a man of character. So you can answer this question. Uh, but, but, but nitpicking and deception, plotting, bribery, because they bribed Judas Iscariot, uh, torture, murder, gossip, false testimony, rabble-rousing, wrath, gossip, all of these things, among other things. These are always the tactics of those groups whose true paternity is being revealed in their opposition to the Word of God. So really, in all of these groups, you can see that they're not serving God. Even if they claim to be, they were serving their, their father, the, the devil. All right, now, here, here's, the, here's the part we want to get to. How did Jesus act in the crosshairs? What can we learn about Jesus? Because this entire city series has been to learn about Jesus. That's the whole goal of this. Well, first of all, we know that Jesus' program was not determined by his enemies. We can see that's how he acted. He, his schedule, his program, his goal, his mission was not the things he did. They were not determined by his enemies. Jesus was not living in reaction to the people around him. He was living in response to the, to the Word of God and the Spirit of God. He was, he was living in response to the call on his life, the mission that he had. He was living in response to that. He was doing what his father told him. And in reality, what was really happening was his enemies were reacting to him. I mean, he announced he was going to Jerusalem. And he announced that what was going to happen in Jerusalem to his disciples in Galilee before they ever went to Jerusalem. The fact that Jesus is suffering from these events seems to be oddly out of place when, as we read them, we see that Jesus is absolutely in control of the situation. Jesus remained in control. He knew what was going on. He let it happen. He was, he was in charge. He was never out of control of the situation. He refused to back down, break down, or retreat. Jesus refused to back down, break down, or retreat. He just walked straight ahead through the events straight towards his destiny, which he knew was the cross. He could have fled. He, he could have escaped. He could have denied the, that destiny, but he refused to back down. And he did not allow any action or, or, or attitude of those that were enemies of the gospel around him or enemies of God around him to, to intimidate him. He was not intimidated by the might of imperial Rome and, and, nor by the force of the enemies against him. He did not react to them he responded, he was responding to the, what the Father was saying, and they were reacting to him. Next, Jesus did not fight fire with fire. He, he resorted to God. He was calm, meditative, prayerful. He didn't return hate for hate. He didn't return violence for violence. You know, I mean, when one of those soldiers punched him in the face, he didn't say, oh, yeah, well, let me show you something. Pow, you know. You know, a cosmic punch, boom, you know, like a video game or something. Um, it, it, though he dealt with pain and with disappointment, with betrayal, 
he never became bitter. He never returned what was given to him with the same thing. Next, Jesus concentrated more on his closest relationships as the extended relationships became more and more dangerous. As those that were further away from him began turning on him, he concentrated more on those who are close. Now, now listen to this. Why do you believe that Satan hates the family so badly? Well, well one reason, of course, is because it's an institution that God brought into being, and Satan hates everything that's of God. Well, he hates every human being, whether you're a Christian or not, because you were made in the image of God. He, he just hates. But I'll tell you another reason. Everybody needs a place of strength. You know, if you're a young person in the ministry, I can tell you this. Someday, you'll be in a situation in ministry where everybody is opposed to you. You'll, you'll preach some sermon somewhere and everybody will yell, crucify him. Trust me, it will happen eventually. At that moment, you're going to need to, to a, a circle of intimate support into which you can retreat that will strengthen you to go through the events that you have to go through. You're going to need your spouse, you're going to need your family to rally around you and to support you. And Jesus, in the absence of a wife and children, he turned to his disciples. And he pulled his intimate relationships, his friends around him. And Everybody needs that. I don't care who you are, everybody needs that. And I believe that one of the reasons that Satan is attempting to destroy the family, and, and I don't even, I don't even, I'm not even saying this is the top reason. I think there are lots of reasons. But one of the reasons is because he's attempting to, to destroy the support system that a lot of people need in a, a moment of crisis and need. If he can destroy your family, you just don't have any place really to go. He's destroyed that place of strength for you. You know, one, one of the saddest things in the world is, Guys who will sit at a bar stool at the corner of a, of a bar and just pour their heart out to some uncaring bartender. You know, I, I believe that the, the bartender is sort of like the priest of the world. You know, he sits there and he listens and says, boy, that's tough. Oh, that's tough. And then he'll say, well, should I set him up again? That's about the extent of his answer. Would you like to, another drink? That's the only answer. And that man sits there on that bar stool and pours out his heart to another man who doesn't care because he has no place to which he can retreat. There's no stronghold for his life. Second thing is everybody needs a place of safety. Everybody needs that. Not only a place of strength, but everybody needs a place where you feel safe. Jesus needed people around him where he could go, you know what, I just need somebody around me right now that's not going to try to roll a hand grenade under the a table. Right? I just need somebody that I know is with me. The third thing, as Jesus realized that the target was trained, uh, training on his back, the crosshairs were coming together on the back of his neck, that he was right in the crosshairs, Jesus, as, as time went on, he grew more and more urgent to implant in his closest relationships the things that would strengthen them when he was gone. He wanted them to be ready. That's why he talked to them about the things that were about to happen. And he tried to tell them the things they needed because he knew it was going to be a very, very, very difficult time for them. 
And he wanted them to have what they needed to carry them through until the resurrection at least, you know. You, you can almost hear the tone of his voice as he draws near to the end of the Gospel of Mark. It's like he's saying, pay attention, this is important, I'm, I'm talking to you, listen to me. You, you, you can almost hear this, this strident quality in his, to his voice, almost, almost an irritation, you know. Wake up, he said, you're sleeping, stay awake and, and, and pray, this is important, this is significant. And, and, he, and he draws this circle in, he says, come on. And then the last thing about how Jesus acted during this time is that Jesus, with regards to his enemies, Jesus treated different enemies in different ways. This is the last thing. I'll close with this in just a moment. Jesus had his strongest reactions to his religious enemies. You can see that all throughout the New Testament. But, but the fact is, Jesus had very little angry or upset words to say toward sensualists or materialists, the prostitutes, the barkeeps, the world. Jesus, Jesus seemed to be compassionate and even sad for them. I mean, look at the mob, for example. Jesus, when the mob turned on him and they were screaming, crucify him, Jesus did not turn on the mob and scream at them. Did he? No, no. He just sort of seemed to stare out at them from the porch of Pilate's house and in a sadness as the, as the willing sacrifice of the howling mob. With, with the Romans, he was more aloof and refused to play their political games. Pilate just kept saying, answer me. Just, just talk to me. I don't want to crucify you. I like you. You, you can see Pilate almost seems frustrated in the situation. I don't, I don't want to do this. Talk to me. Talk to me, Jesus. Give me a reason for me to dismiss this charge. Come on, talk to me. But Jesus is almost like, well, you're on your own, boy. Do whatever you have to do. I'm not going to help you at all. He just stands there. He doesn't lacerate Pilate. He doesn't lash out at him. With the Herodians, Jesus is absolutely silent. He realizes that they have become so debauched that, that they have entered into that phase where they cannot hear anything he says. And God will not violate his own teaching. He will not cast his pearls before swine. And that, that's a hard teaching. A lot of people don't like to hear that. But I'll, but I'll tell you something. A man can so saturate his mind with depravity and evil and sin and debauchery and wickedness. And God will plead with him earnestly, tenderly call him, woo him, court him, send the, the Holy Spirit, convict him. And finally, God will say, okay, that's it. And just be silent. That's what Romans 1 talks about with the wrath of God. The wrath of God being poured out is when God turns the, uh, the, the sinful people over to their sins. He says, all right, you've chosen this. I've been trying to draw you to me. I've been trying to show you the truth. I've been trying to show you the way to find uh, salvation, but you refuse, and instead you want this sinful debauchery, so I'll let you have it, and it's going to destroy you. That's, that's the ultimate wrath of God uh, as it plays out in the world today is where God just gives us over to the very things that we are sinful flesh desires that will destroy us. That's what, that's what, uh, like what he did with the Herodians. It, and in that situation, you know, it's, it seems hard, but it's not that God has condemned the man, it's that, it's that the man has condemned himself. Sooner or later, God will say, I will not strive with you any longer. 
If you, if you want to be dead in your sin, Herodian, fine. You'll not hear from me again. However, where, where Jesus spoke the hardest, where he gave his most biting sarcasm, was with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He, he was sometimes careful with his words, but he was never fearful. And I heard one teacher one time say that Jesus was never sarcastic, and I, I just don't think he's reading the same Bible I was, that I'm reading. Uh, the, the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they, they ask him a trick question, and Jesus deals with them with the, with the wave of his hand, and and then he turns to the crowd and he says, what, there, there are two men who came into the temple to pray. And one man came up to the front and he had on long robes with his prayer shawl and his phylactery on his forehead and bound to his hand. And he was so religious. Now the Pharisees are sitting right there. They're right there listening. And Jesus says, they were so religious. And he walks to the front of the temple and he says, oh God, Oh God, I thank you that you have not made me like these other people, these stinking sinners. I actually kind of laugh when I read that parable that, that, that Jesus told because it'd be like me being in here saying, because it says, I, the, the, he said, God, I thank you that you did not make me like this tax collector, this sinner here. You know, it'd be like me saying, Oh God, I thank you that I'm such a righteous man, not like Lee. <laughs> you know, that'd be what it's like, you know, pointing him out, but... But, but so he says this, he says, I'm, I, God, I'm so glad, God, thank you for that you've made me so wonderful and so religious. I thank you so much, God. And Jesus says, another man came, comes in and he sits on the back row and he says, oh, God, I'm not even worthy to be in this place. Please have mercy on me. Please have mercy on me. And Jesus turns to the mob and he says, that man went away justified. And the very next verse says, and the Pharisees plotted how they might kill him. Well, I reckon they did. I, I, I don't know where the teacher gets the idea that Jesus was never sarcastic because his sarcasm was biting, it was strong, it was hard as he tried to show them in a difficult way the, just how ridiculous they looked before God trying to stand in their own righteousness. However, I want you to notice about sarcasm. He did not use it on the woman who was caught in adultery. He never saw her as an enemy. The sinner is not the enemy of God. The legalist is the enemy of God. The prostitute is not the enemy of God. The guy who would put her to death without a hint of grace was the enemy of God. Understand what I'm saying? I mean, I mean, in a sense, any sinner is opposed to God. And I, and, but, but I'm just saying that the racist is not the enemy of God. The man who justifies his racism with a system of unbelief is the enemy of God. You, you see what I'm saying? That, that, there's, that he's going to respond to some enemies in different ways. And that's what I'm saying. But Jesus never saw the sinner as the enemy of God. He never saw the sinner as the one that was opposed to him. He saw the religious, political, and military structures that systematized themselves in opposition to the living God. And they were his enemies. Well, how should we close then? Paul, Paul said it, Ephesians 6, 12. I like this version from the New Living Translation. It makes it very, very clear. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. You know what? We have to be able to tell who the bad guys are. 
and the drunk stumbling down the street, he is not the enemy of this church. He is not the enemy of God. Your mother-in-law that's driving you crazy. Now, I know this is hard for you to believe, brother, but she is not the enemy. Our struggle is not with any earthly, fleshly enemy. Our struggle is to remain calm, in control, authoritative, and to lead with the diligence and faithfulness of responsiveness to the Holy Spirit when the enemy is operating behind us to bring destruction to the revival of God. No, we stand firm. We stand strong in the strength of God, not reacting to what's going on around us, but being more like Jesus, just responding to what he says and let other people react to us. What can we say about Jesus in all these things? I think one thing we could say is Jesus was at peace in the presence of his enemies. You never see Jesus howling and screaming and yelling. You don't see him kicking dust in their faces. See, Jesus just seems to stand unmoved above the crowd. And as they, as they howl, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And all he says is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We can have this peace. That's the work in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That we can have that peace and that confidence in Jesus, no matter what the world comes. Because, you know, you can look at all of these different enemies of Jesus and you can still, you can see them in, uh, uh, you know, represented in different groups and different people around you in your life and in our culture. But in the middle of that, listen, we don't have to fear the, the, the earthly enemies. They're not really our enemy anyway. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We don't have to be afraid. The good news is Jesus already won. He already won. So I can have peace. I don't have to fear. Amen. Let's pray and ask him for his peace. Lord, as we come into your presence, we, we just thank you, God, that we, we can turn to you in the midst of a world that is, is filled with the spirit of Antichrist. And they, they, they hate us because they hate you. But God, our response is not to return fire with fire. But God, our response is to try to live the way you did and to live with, in, in the midst of all of the turmoil and all the darkness, to live with peace, to live with love, to live with confidence, to not be afraid to speak the truth, but to respond to what you're saying to us and live the way you call us to live, and then we let the world react around us. But Lord, I just pray you'd help us to learn from you when you were in the crosshairs in those moments when somebody takes us as their enemy and we're in their crosshairs. Help us to learn to live like you and be able to say, Father, forgive them. They just, they just don't know what they're doing. Reveal yourself to them, Lord. And I just thank you for what you're doing and thank you for the peace that we can find in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.